Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm at Prem. Eric Scopel with me as always on this Monday edition of the Otson Audibles podcast, breaking down Oregon's closer than expected 38-35 victory at home over the weekend over the UCLA Bruins. The Ducks improved to 3-0 on the season. But before we dive into our grades, before we dive into standouts, concerns, let's quickly remind you guys that you could subscribe today for DuckTerritory.com for as low as $1 for your first month, $9.95 thereafter that, or subscribe with an annual membership, one-time payment, $75.18 and that saves you over $36 over the course of the year compared to that month-to-month rate. And because right now we're not running a promo, you get instant access to CBS All Access. It's our streaming platform. It's a $100 value. Live shows, live sports, commercial-free, on-demand. You get it all with CBS All Access. Highly encourage you guys to sign up today. Okay, Eric, uh, 38-35 victory for the Oregon Ducks. They're 3-0. and Mario Cristobal says it afterwards that you will never apologize for a victory. And yet you kind of feel like at the same time, like, boy, that was kind of underwhelming. Like, yeah, we're happy they won. And yeah, we're happy that they improved to three and zero, and they're still in the playoff hunt. They're still in the Rose bowl hunt, uh, or I guess the conference championship hunt this season, if you're an Oregon duck fan, but at the same time, it's like, boy, there's a lot of concerns now all of a sudden. I think on rewatch, the thing that stood out to me was just how, Little little momentum there was carried over from like series to series for Oregon on both sides of the ball. They start the game as, as we established those two forced turnovers. They score immediately after, and it's kind of like best case scenario. And you're thinking fourteen nothing. This is going to be maybe that blow we're expecting. Now they've got UCLA playing with the backup quarterback with two score deficit. It's kind of you got them right where you want them, and then it's a long, not even a long, because like because there was a penalty on Oregon and they get the ball at midfield. They come down, they score. Oregon fumbles and, and UCLA scoops and scores it, and suddenly it's a tie game. And you're going, well, geez, what the heck? What's going on here? And then Oregon has next to no momentum for the rest of the first half, and UCLA takes a lead. And Oregon has that pick six, and it feels like, okay, here we go. This is going to be where it opens up again. Oregon did the same thing against Washington State last week. They had a late score. Second half, they kind of opened things up. And it feels like for most of the second half, that's where it's going. And then it doesn't go that way. And suddenly... Oregon is unable to really put the, I mean, I, I know I mentioned it on Saturday's podcast postgame edition of like, it really felt like Oregon had two drives there where they got into UCLA territory where they could have just put their foot down and just put the game almost out of reach. And yet they miss a Camden Lewis field goal. They get a penalty and a sack and then they have to punt and UCLA comes down and makes it a three point game. Oregon can't do anything offensively. UCLA comes down and like, objectively I when UCLA gets the ball there and I think it's pretty telling and, and even on rewatch I mean obviously I knew it was going to happen but like just the way the game had gone to that point I didn't have a super high confidence level in Oregon winning that game wasn't super yeah. high and it just kind of felt like the way this game the momentum of this game and the way Oregon's defense had played 
Like, you is just going to come down the field and score a touchdown. I think the one thing that was playing in Oregon's favor there was because of the time constraints, you said they couldn't just run the ball every down. Because I think if – like, legitimately, I look at that and go, if, if you still had four minutes rather than two minutes and the clock wasn't a factor and they were able to run the ball, I don't know if Oregon's defense is going to be able to get them off the field. But yeah, the you feel that, a lot different about that game. Yeah, and so, like, the fact that they had to throw it, Oregon's secondary made some plays. Oregon finally got a little pass rush that at least forced Griffin to – to kind of have to make some tough plays, um, et cetera, and they end up winning the game. But like you on rewatch, really, I don't think you feel any better. I mean, and there are certainly, again, it was so uneven. There are certainly moments where you're like, oh, that was pretty impressive. But for the most part, you come away going like, eek, like that's not the game or the team we really expected to see this week against a UCLA team that was down nine players, including their starting quarterback. Now the question becomes, and we'll get to your grades here in a little bit, but the question becomes, is UCLA better than their one and two record indicates? And for one week, I, I kind of think they're maybe a top six team in the league right now, the way just that they're performing and playing. I mean, their defense was legit against Oregon's. And you go and you look at, you know, let's look at what Oregon and who Oregon has played. Their first two games, they have played – Washington, they played Stanford and then they played Washington State. Those two programs, from a yards per place perspective, are the two worst defenses in the entire conference. So they beat up big time on the, the two worst teams in the conference. From a points per game perspective, Stanford is ninth in the conference at 35 points allowed per game. Washington State is 10th in the conference with 35.5 points per game. Uh, both teams have played two games, um, and it, it's evident that uh, those two defenses are not very good. On the flip side, UCLA is a little bit better. They're 32 points per game, sixth in the conference, but you look at their total defense, yards per play, they're the second-best defense in the conference. At 5.15, uh, they're averaging uh, – they're, they're allowing 374 yards per game total. That's third-best in the conference. Uh, Utah is second ahead of them. Washington is first. Utah's only played one game. Um, you look at the rushing defense, and this was an instance in which Oregon could not move the football at all against yeah. against the Bruins on the ground. And we quickly learned that, you know, I'm going to say they're they're number one because Utah has played just one game, but UCLA is averaging a a, a second best number of 3.36 yards per carry um, on the ground this season. And that's kind of mind boggling to, to, to look at. And maybe that explains a little bit of the struggles that we saw from this Oregon football team. Now on the flip side, you look at this and you think, look, Oregon is the second highest points, you know, second highest scoring offense in the conference from a rushing perspective, uh, from an average perspective, even with that bad game against UCLA, uh, they're third in the conference at 5.69 uh, yards per game this season. They're fifth, uh, just over 200 yards. Uh, you look at their total offensive numbers in, in the conference, and they are first in yards per game at just under 500 yards. They're literally 0.3 yards away from that. From a yards per place perspective, they're drastically better than their next counterpart. They're number one in the conference at 7.65. So, you look at this and you wonder, okay, was this just a bad matchup? Was this just 
a game in which Oregon was playing truly one of the better defenses in the country in the conference, and they struggled a little bit, or are there bigger issues at play here? I don't think we have any idea. <laughs> this is where I'm at, Matt. Because <laughs> it's like there's some, the sample size is small. And I will say UCLA in consecutive weeks against the two teams that were voted to finish first and second in the Pac-12 North went out and played very, very well, right? And I mean, they beat the crap out of Cal last week and they hung tight with Oregon with a back of quarterback. And their defense was really impressive, especially against the run. I, I think they clearly aren't very – they weren't very good against the pass in either game and, and – Tyler Shuck, I thought, had some really nice moments throwing the football. But, like, I, I mean, it's really hard to gauge right now of, like, okay, if we think UCLA is really good, do we think Colorado is really good then, too? Because they did beat UCLA in the opening week, 48-42. And Colorado then beat Stanford. So, like, is Colorado the class of the Pac-12 South? I, I, and this is where it gets really confusing. I, I really don't know. And, I, and it's, I feel even the same way about Oregon State, who Oregon's next opponent here of, like, they almost beat Washington State. They almost beat Washington. They just beat Cal. Is Oregon State really good? Or is, are all these teams just kind of in the same bubble? Are they all kind of, you know, about the same? And is Oregon in that group too? I mean, I know Oregon's one of a couple of teams that are 3-0 and right now. And I think Oregon's really talented. And there are certainly been instances where I'm like, wow, they look really good for certain stretches of the game on both sides of the ball, primarily on offense, but defensively there have been nice stretches too. But I, I really don't know what to make of UCLA. I really don't know what to make of anyone in this conference right now. And I think that's what makes this year kind of so fun, but also so kind of maddening of like, we all thought that was going to be a blowout against UCLA and it couldn't have been anything further from that. And you go into a game with Oregon State and I just put my five predictions up for the week and I'm not going to spoil all of them, but one of them was just, I expect this to be a, like a really close game. And I have no idea if that's going to be the case or not. I wouldn't be surprised if Oregon, I don't, I don't think they're going to lose, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a one score game. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's a four or five score game. You just don't know from week to week. And I think that's what's so frustrating and not frustrating, but so that kind of makes it fun, but also like, you just don't know. The sample size is so small. We haven't seen any of these teams play in non-conference. These teams have completely different preparation. Like, California is 0-2 right now, but they had a much different lead-up to the season than anyone else. So, I mean, UCLA is 1-2, but could easily be, you know, 2-1, maybe 3-0 and because they almost came back to beat Colorado. So, I, I think it's really hard to gauge that, and that makes it even harder to gauge whether or not Oregon is, quote-unquote, a good team or not right now. Like, I think, I think they have – they show glimpses of it. But I don't even know. I don't even know when we're going to know, Matt. Like, are we even going to know after the regular season ends if Oregon's very good? I mean, because you look at the schedule, like Oregon State, that's going to be an. I think that's an interesting test. Cal might not be much of a test at all. The way they've looked so far, I mean, they are zero two and haven't looked very impressive in either game. And Washington barely beat Oregon State, and they put it to Arizona pretty good over the weekend. But the Wildcats kind of hung around, like. And their game this weekend with Washington State, we should note, is also already canceled. So, like, they might Oregon might play them at five and zero, and Washington might be three and zero. Like, we, like it, it's it's such a weird season, and I just think we're going to end up coming away from this, even at the end of the year, being like, I don't know who was good or who was bad. I just know it was really total pandemonium, pandemonium from week to week. All right, let's dive into um, some of your 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 grades offensively from a positive standpoint. What stood out the most to you? I thought the pass catchers, the wide receivers and tight ends, I gave them an A grade. I mean, I, and I look at this and think, sure, 
I think there was Devin Williams dropped a key pass on a third down, but he also had six catches for 123 yards and a touchdown. Hunter Kentmore, you know, I, I don't know if we talk enough about how impressive he was on Saturday. Five catches, 70 yards, a touchdown that all came in the second half. These guys were getting open. They were making plays down the field. And they were short. And this is a group that was also out Micah Pittman, still out Cam McCormick, Spencer Webb, and Patrick Herbert at tight end. Like they don't have all their pieces. And yet I thought they played close to a perfect game. I mean, I don't, there weren't, like I said, there weren't very many plays they, they failed on or dropped or, or failed to get open for. Um, you know, and I thought just overall, those guys played really, really well. And coming into the season, like the wide receiver tight end combination, I remember doing podcasts at the end of fall camp saying, like, I have no idea if this group's going to be very good. Like they were the biggest mystery and through three games. And especially on Saturday, I probably feel better about this position group offensively than I do any other group. And that's not where I expected to be, but that's been a very pleasant surprise for me. And I, like I said, I gave them an A grade, which is far and away the best grade of any of these offensive groups. Defensively. I think there could be a couple of areas where we look at this and say, boy, that, that was not good. But what was the most alarming one for you from a grade perspective? I thought the defensive line, um, I gave them a C grade. And honestly, in retrospect, it could have been a little worse. I, I just thought, like, even on rewatch, schematically, it was a little strange what they did. It seemed like they were pretty big gaps between them. And this is something we can talk to Andy Avalos about later today when we have an opportunity to speak with him. But like what, what they were doing just wasn't very effective. And, you know, in the past, you could in the past, I was probably more critical of the linebackers because of the way opponents ran on Oregon. I thought they made some, you know, I thought certainly in the first game against Stanford, we saw Drew Mathis and Noah Sewell, and Isaac Slade, Mato and, and even against Washington State, kind of just like get lost at, on the second level. And they, you know, they, they, their fits weren't very good. And they basically got, they ran into the offensive line and then the running back finds the hole and it's, there's no one there and it's a big game. And against Washington state, they missed tackles in open space. I thought this one was like largely just the defensive line didn't get much push and they got moved back and UCLA's offensive line won the battles most of the time. And there were, and there were certainly instances where Demetric Felton, you say running back who, I thought looked great, by the way. Like, I don't know exactly what his professional ceiling looks like, but he looks like an NFL player to me. Um, well, if we're listening to uh, Andre Ware, it's Alvin Kamara. I mean, that's what he was <laughs> saying on the, oh, don't get on me the broadcast. Don't I don't get... want to interrupt and go down a tangent <laughs> hole, but from, from an NFL perspective, they were calling him one of the best running backs coming into the NFL soon. I don't want to get going on Andre Ware. He was pretty clueless on rewatch. That was um, that was difficult to listen to at times. Plus, they weren't in attendance there, which was also puzzling. Any, but you're right. Like, but he, I thought Felton was good, and like or, yes. he made Oregon players miss in space, and certainly the linebackers were a part of that. Second, he made. I mean, he made everybody look silly at times, and was very impressive. But like, I just think overall the defensive line was my. I'm, pro- I'm probably the most disappointed there, and that doesn't take away from the fact that Brandon Dorlis clobbers Chase Griffin on the pass that leads to the Jordan Happel interception or that Kayvon Thibodeau had some nice moments again, getting into the backfield, making plays. Um, there were certainly some quality moments there, but I think when, when Oregon really needed to force some stops and make things difficult on the UCLA offense, they didn't. And I mean, I think the, I mean, it was pretty telling that in the fourth quarter, in the last couple minutes of the game on third and like 14 or 15 or whatever it was, they tried to run a, a draw to the running back rather than throw the ball downfield because Oregon's defense just had not been very successful at all 
in slowing the run game. So I thought the defensive line was, was puzzling and disappointing and a group that we had felt pretty good about just really hasn't produced. And again, the lack of sacks and ability to get after the quarterback. And I know they probably their best effort from that regard on Saturday, it just hasn't been quite good enough. And I guess credit to Houston's offensive line, but I think Oregon's defensive line, and it doesn't get any easier this week. Jamar Jefferson is, I think every bit as good, if not better than Demetri Felton. Um, I guess that makes him what, uh, Dalvin Cook or uh, <laughs> Christian, McC- Christian McCaffrey or Ezekiel Elliott or something. Um, he, but- uh, Jamar Jefferson is uh, the leader in the clubhouse for t- rushing touchdowns with five. Uh, from a rushing yards perspective, he leads the conference with 449, which is over 100 more than, than what Dimitri Felton has done in the same amount of games and, and fewer carries at that, which is even mind-boggling. And his uh, average... Uh, per carry is fourth in the conference at 7.24 and and the three guys ahead of him combined don't have as many carries as he does so the going doesn't get any easier this week for this defensive line I'll put it that way they're going to be challenged for sure against an Oregon State offensive line which I don't think is probably going to be better than UCLA but a running back that is every bit as good if not better now individually um, looking across the scoreboard I think the one that everyone will, will will point to is probably Devin Williams, six catches, 123 yards, one touchdown, 11 targets in this game. Um, yeah. Tyler Shuck afterwards talked about how he wasn't necessarily just dialed in on Devin Williams. It's just that's kind of how the game plan played out. That's kind of how the defense and who they were looking at has played out. Um, is it – a little concerning, though, that Johnny Johnson, like, I don't have his full stats in front of me, and I'm, and I'm going to do that right now. Um, but from a football perspective this season, three games in, Johnny Johnson is one of the top receivers coming back in the conference. And through three games now, from a, re- from a reception standpoint, he has seven catches for 112 yards and one touchdown. Highly effective, but I'm a little surprised that he hasn't been utilized as much as uh, as as often as Oregon has thrown the football. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I don't I don't know if it's like like I think the, the passing game is not the problem. Let's just start there. Like I think the passing no, it's game not. And there's there's not a problem, but I'm just kind of like it's interesting how I figured he would have a bigger role in this in this offense, and maybe that's kind of what opponents are doing is, Hey, we're going to take away John Johnson and force someone else to beat us. I think, and I, I'm going to guess that's probably more the case. I think Washington state had one catch for two yards, pretty productive in the opening game. I think I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think he had like four catches for 70 yards in that one, um, two catches for 50 against UCLA. So when they did go to him, it was pretty successful and impactful offensive plays, but no, I think it's been interesting. Um, they are spreading the football around a little bit more than I expected from week to week. Yep. And again, like I, I look at this group and feel like Michael Pittman should, in theory, be back this week. I think we're expecting him to be back. And if, when that's the case, like, boy, Oregon has four really great receivers. And that's even Chris Hudson, who was just like the talk of all of fall camp. He hasn't really – I mean, he's made some catches. I think he has at least one catch in every game. And they've all been like at least 10 to 15 yards downfield. So it's not like he's been unproductive. Like we haven't even seen him come into focus this this season so far offensively. I think this receiving group is really, really impressive, and you get excited about it. And 
I'm not going to be surprised at all if Johnny Johnson has just a big game here in one of these games coming up here because, as Tyler Shuck said, and you alluded to a second ago, it, when I, I asked the question about, like, you know, Devin Williams, you targeted him on 11 of your 30 pass attempts. So it's more than a third of, of your pass attempts. It, it, he, his response was not, well, Devin Williams is the guy. You know, he was just, he was just open every play I had to throw to him or like, I was locked in on him. He's my number one target. It was more like that was what the defense provided, and that's why I went there. Yeah, I, I just think looking, Eric, at the receiver spot, like Devin Williams' emergence on Saturday against UCLA was huge. The Ducks need that type of a playmaker. He's the six foot five type receiver that Oregon has, hasn't had. And honestly, Dwayne Sanford, um, maybe before that, like truly dominant Jason Williams. And look, it's one game. We don't want to jump in and 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 say all of a sudden he's going to be one of the best receivers that Oregon's ever had. But nonetheless, he brings a different dimension to this team. And it, it was a very positive development. And you mentioned it in the grades of the, the, the pass catchers, Hunter Campmore. Like, I don't know about you, Eric, but I don't mean to be mean, but Hunter Campmore in his first three years as a tight end at Oregon – was someone in which you just said he's an afterthought. He he he's he's out there for blocking when he's out there, uh, and then you know it's either going to be a run play or he's not an option in the passing game because he's going to stay home to give you ex you know max protection. He looked like a completely different player on Saturday, going for five catches, one short of what his career total was going into the game. 70 yards, which is seven yards more than his entire career reception record. He, he matched his touchdowns too with one. I mean, he, he had one before this game and then he caught another one. So I look at this and I'm like, whoa, this was unexpected to be this good. And maybe if it's maybe it's an overreaction, but I thought he, he looked worlds better than what DJ Johnson has shown in his first two games. I don't know about worlds better, but I think he certainly was impressive. And I certainly feel like Oregon now has two very capable weapons in the passing game at tight end. And that doesn't include Spencer Webb, who was a pretty known commodity in that area last year. That doesn't include Cam McCormick, who, gosh, I just hope he gets healthy at this point. I don't even, yeah. really, I don't even really know if I care about the production. I just want to see him play. Um, and even if it's limited snaps, I, I just feel for him. He's, I mean, they, I don't know if I can think of another – player in Oregon history that's dealt with a career like this from an injury perspective and and just you know I mean and usually you'd see a player with this many injury concerns just probably like medically retire at some point and for Cam to continue to come back like it's going to be a great story for him once he can get healthy and once he's able to perform and like I said I'm at this point I don't even care if it's if he's the team's fifth tight end and he's playing mop-up duty at the end of a game I just want to see him play but like yeah you're right I mean I agree Hunter Campmore we ragged on him a ton last year yeah. in terms of what he was as a pass catcher. Cause he wasn't one, you know, he was a converted defensive lineman who just basically was, you know, <laughs> you mentioned Jason Williams a second ago in a different light talking about Devin Williams, but as we recall, Jason Williams nickname was 50, 50. And that, that was kind of my perspective on Hunter Campmore. It's like, if he gets the ball thrown his way, like I, I don't feel that great. He's going to catch it. And it's just one game. And it's the same thing as Devin Williams. You don't want to like completely, go too far down here but 
I feel really good about what the Ducks have at tight end now. It was, again, it was the biggest mystery group all fall camp. We had no idea. And maybe that's why it was. Maybe it was that way because, A, there's some injuries, but, B, because it was like, nobody knows Hunter Cantmore is this good, and Hunter Cantmore is going to come out and just blow people out of the water. And he, was, he missed the first two games with an undisclosed injury. He comes out, and he looks great. He really looks great. He, he's cut some weight. He looked fast. He looked mobile. He caught the ball effortlessly. Um, boy, what a great showing from him in, in his debut this season. And offensively, I thought, yeah, I mean, the two big takeaways for me are the Ducks now have two guys that we didn't really know what to make of in the passing game in Devin Williams and Hunter Campmore, who for at least one day looked very capable of being contributors. Defensively, um, this was one in which it was kind of strange. Like, I had Jordan Happel as one of my top players. He obviously had the huge interception return for a touchdown. He led the team in total tackles. But I also don't know if it's the best possible outcome if one of your safeties is leading your team in tackles um, because you would prefer that to be a linebacker, which indicates that either A, Happel is having to play way up to help provide run support, or B, he's the opponent's running through your your front seven and Happel's having to come up and – and get the stops. I was very impressed with Isaac Slade Matuatia. I think this was a game in which, you know, the first two games, everyone was kind of, where's Isaac? Why is he not playing very well? He's, he's not a good linebacker, yada, 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 overreaction, overreaction, overreaction. And then in this instance, Isaac was all over the field. I think he, he finished with 10 tackles four solo finished off a bunch of tackles, had a broken uh, pass was very good for Oregon at that linebacker spot. I also had Mace Funa as a guy that stood out. Um, And honestly, like with Noah Sewell now out, I look at two guys that are going to, we obviously know Isaac's going to have to step up even more, but that's a given. But I think two other guys with Noah now potentially out moving forward, uh, Mace Funa and Adrian Jackson. I think those are the two guys that are going to see the impact the most of this injury to Sewell, however long he's out. And we don't know how long he is. Yeah, Cristobal did post game seem a little optimistic. Um, it's tough to really know, and and there's only three weeks left in the season uh, before they they play that seventh week. Um, but we also know that Sewell left the game with one crutch, an air cast or, or a boot, a walking boot, not an air cast, a boot. Yeah, and was hardly even using the crutch, which, considering he got carted off would suggest that this is maybe it's an, it's an injury, but it's maybe not as serious as we thought it would. And, and maybe Oregon gets him back for a bowl game. Maybe Oregon gets him back for that seventh game of the year. We don't know, but I, I think it's safe to say that Isaac Mace, Adrian, those three guys are really going to have to step up their, their game here. I'm going to guess we're not going to have an idea of Noah Sewell's status this weekend until kickoff. Yeah, there's no that. way they're going to tell us he's playing because he's not going to say it on Monday. And then we don't speak with. We only have. I should. Yeah, we only have one opportunity to speak with Cristobal this week, and that's that's Monday morning. Um, Tuesday is uh, going to be players, and Wednesday there's no media availability because of Thanksgiving coming up on Thursday, um, in a shortened game week. So like, I don't think we're going to have much clarity from Noah Sewell in term, unless it's a serious injury is out for the season. But guess what? We think uh, Justin Flo suffered a serious injury and is out for the season, and we still don't have official word <laughs> from Cristobal on that. So, yeah, I'm expecting that that's exactly where things are at of, okay, um, we don't know what Sewell's going to do. And I agree, those three guys, 
I think are going to have to step up. I throw Drew Mathis into the discussion just because he was the player who was working at the mic spot along with Noah during fall camp. And he performed decent so far this season. He's not Noah Sewell, but he had five tackles against UCLA on Saturday. Those are the four guys to kind of know. And I, I think Adrian Jackson, and I said this earlier, I, he has just moments of like, holy cow, this guy's incredible. Um, so incredibly athletic. He was the player who brought down Demetric Felton on that third down run play, that draw. And if, if, if he doesn't make that tackle, it's possible Felton runs for a first down. And he also had one of two sacks on that, in that game. So like, I look at Jackson, I'm like, God, if he plays more and he can play at a high level, that would be really uh, an intriguing development for Oregon. I'll be curious to see if he may see, may see, we see him line up at a couple of different spots. Um, but you're right. I think defensively, those guys stood out. Um, I, I think honestly, kind of quiet here, but how about Jamal Hill with four pass breakups? Yeah. I, 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 that was something that even on rewatch, I don't think I noticed until I looked at the box score a little bit more closely. He also um, had the game winning breakup. Yeah. I was gonna say he was the one who was in on that pass at the very end of the game to deflect it. So He's starting as a true sophomore to kind of make a little bit more plays. Well, he didn't have a tackle, but I was gonna say he had one, and I was gonna say that um, he had some really bad missed tackles, in particular the very first play of the game. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It, it was bad, uh, and I don't want to pick on just him because I think Oregon's entire defense has a tackling issue, and I think that's maybe the most surprising, most concerning thing with this team is that last year they were so good, so good in terms of wrapping up, getting guys down on first contact, holding the guy up so that the, you know, the, the reserves could come in and clean up the play. And this year it's just different. They, they, they're taking bad pursuit angles. Their, their, their tackling is really bad. And I think that's the most concerning thing out of this entire unit is that, yes, they, they're getting blown up at times along the offensive line. Yes, that their pass coverage at times can be suspect, but it's the overall ability to tackle. And I think you go back and let's remove Troy Dye. Let's remove Brady Breeze. Let's remove Javon Holland. And let's remove Thomas Graham from this defense and I understand that that die graduated, but those were those were four of probably your top six or seven most sure tacklers on the team, and they're all gone. And probably to be to be honest with you, with Holland and Die, and probably Breeze too, probably your three best tacklers from last season all gone. Yeah, I don't think that's completely unfair, honestly, and. Yeah, I, I I think we really felt we were we, we bought into the fact that this defense and probably by mistake here that they were just going to be world beaters immediately, and they haven't been. The tackling part is to me very concerning. I just expected that they would figure it out by now, and you're three games in. Maybe it'll come this week against Oregon State. It better, like I said earlier. Jamar Jefferson is is a dude, and he's tough to bring down, and you got to come ready to play, and if you aren't. He's going to brutalize you like he's done to every opponent so far this year. Let's end it with this. Three games in, you asked me this question on the mailbag, and let's let's just discuss this again. Three games in, this does not look like a playoff team. No, in my eyes, you you agreed. Um, Absolutely. Can they get back to that point? 
And I'm also, I also believe Eric that this team could go seven and oh, and still not be a playoff team. Like I, I think both those situations, Oregon goes seven and oh, they beat Oregon state this week. They go on the road and they beat Cal. They come home and they beat Washington. They beat whoever they play in that seventh game. They go seven and oh, and yet they don't show enough to make the college football playoff. Like, I think both those instances are still true today. I also think there's a, a third scenario here where they do get in the playoff but aren't really deserving of it because they look at it and go, wow, uh, there's a 7-0 Pac-12 team. Are we really going to put a one or two loss team from the SEC or the ACC or the Big Ten in there? And Oregon ends up being the fourth team and probably isn't deserving of it because they just haven't shown very much and it's not a very good outcome. Like I, I'm not closed out to that possibility that we should note Tuesday, they come out with the first college football rankings. I expect Oregon's going to be probably similar to where they are in the AP poll. Um, for those that missed it, Oregon moved to number nine in the AP poll with the win over UCLA. Um, I think they're probably going to be like between eight and 11, probably in the coach in, in the uh, first college football playoff rankings there's going to be a lot of teams ahead of them that lose. And I do think there's still a possibility like deserving or not that Oregon ends up being in this discussion towards the end of the season, if they do run the table. And like I said, I don't know. I mean, like you want to play in this thing, of course you want to have that notoriety. It, it doesn't hurt. But I also think if you're going to go play Alabama, there's, I haven't seen anything from this Oregon team aside from maybe a couple drives in the second half offensively. That leads me to believe Oregon could hang with Alabama for, probably even a half. And I go, boy, if, especially defensively, especially defensively. I think Oregon's offense, if they can get the offensive line to play like they did the first two weeks, they can run the ball. I think Tyler Shuck is talented enough as a passer. We just talked about these pass catchers. I think Oregon, Oregon's offense could score some points against some of these defenses. But I have very little confidence right now in this Oregon defense being able to hang with the big boys just because – We've seen it now the last two weeks, and they performed okay against Stanford, but you have to remember 14 points, but also four missed field goals from Jet Toner. Could have easily been 23 points, or maybe they convert one of those into a touchdown, and now you're looking at it being 21, 24, 28 points. And it's not that quite a, a decisive of a victory, but they also gave up 29 against Washington State, and they gave up 35 to UCLA. And I know one of those is a defensive touchdown, so really 28. But this defense hasn't been impressive enough, and I don't believe that they could hang with the big boys and I kind of think they might end up getting in there if they go seven or no and I look at the schedule and think I haven't seen anything from Oregon's next three opponents that leads me to believe that they're significantly better than Oregon and I haven't seen anything from anyone in the Pac-12 South that leads me to believe that they're significantly better than them either okay so let's go here we know Oregon's a huge favorite against Oregon State in this game I think what 14 points favorite in this one last time I looked. Um, and I've been off. I've been awful in terms of knowing the Vegas odds. But real quick, yeah, they opened up as a 14. William Hill has them as a 14. You can get them as, as high as a 15 and a half at other places. You can get them as low as 13 and a half at other places. But 14 right now at William Hill. I'm not going to ask you, are they going to cover that? Or are they not going to cover that? They're a huge favorite against Oregon State. I imagine they're going to be a one-score favorite at Cal. And with a home game against Washington, they'll probably be some form of a three- to five-point favorite over the Huskies. I think more. I bet you, think you more? more. Okay. Yeah, I bet it's like eight. Well, 
do you look at this? What's a better, what is a more likely outcome in your eyes? Oregon runs the table and goes seven and oh, or they, 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 they slip up and have a loss somewhere or two or two losses. I, I think they're probably going to lose a game. Honestly, I don't think they'll lose two. I don't think any of those teams really scare me enough, but where's it come from? Probably the Washington game is the one I'd be most worried about. Cal doesn't look very good at all. Oregon State, while I think it's going to be a close game, and I think Oregon State presents some challenges because they can run the football really well, and Oregon's defense hasn't shown they can stop that very effectively yet. I just think Oregon's more talented, and 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 they'll win that game. I, I and I, I'm not. I don't want to predict they're going to lose at or to Washington at home. Sure. Like, I don't want to like put that like that's my prediction because. But the, the, the trend right now for me is not real positive. And, and again, I also don't want to make that prediction because there's two games before that. And I'm not going to be totally surprised at all either if Oregon goes out and just clobbers Oregon State, clobbers Cal, and we look at Washington game and Washington kind of has struggled because Washington really should probably not have beaten Oregon State in their opener. And they had some up and down moments. I know that they, they were up by like 30 at one point against Arizona, but it wasn't always pretty. Like, I don't think Washington's incredible either yet. I don't think we've seen enough from the quarterback to really feel like, oh, wow, this team's awesome. So, like, I'm also not going to be surprised if that when that game arises on, I think it's December 12th, if we're looking at Oregon and being like, oh, they're way better than Washington, this game's going to be a wash. But, like, at this point in the season, we're where we're at and what we just saw on Saturday and what we've seen the first two weeks as well, I could see them slipping up. And, that I, I mean, that's where I'm at. I think it's more likely that they slip up and don't win out if they continue at this trajectory than it is that they were to win out playing at this level. I just don't think they're playing well enough to beat some to beat a team like Washington that has not quite as talented of a roster, but certainly a lot more talented than what we've seen the first three games. Yeah, I I think I'm not going to deviate deviate away from Oregon losing a game there this year yet. Um, I still think they go seven and zero, but I think my perspective of all these games except for maybe one or two being blowouts are no longer the case. I, I think Oregon will be in basically a battle every single week. You know, I, I, I think this is a situation in which Oregon is going to be going into fourth quarters the rest of the way, knowing, Hey, this game is still in doubt. We have to play at our best if we want to walk away with a victory and that could potentially lead to a loss, but I think Oregon has the best talent on the Pac-12. I think they have the best coaching staff in the Pac-12. It's up to the staff. It's up to the players now to, in the next three to four weeks, make those improvements that we were kind of expecting through two games of this football season. Nonetheless, we're going to be there for it all, uh, breaking it all down, watching it play out. It's going to be fun to see. Uh, Oregon try and repeat as Pac-12 champions. And, oh, by the way, real quick, uh, the men and the women both have their season opening basketball games this weekend. The men play Wednesday against Eastern Washington at Matthew Knight Arena. I should be there for that one. And correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but Oregon's season opener from a women's side is also on Saturday, the day after uh, the Oregon Oregon State football game. It is against Seattle University at Matthew Knight Arena. So a busy couple of days for myself and a busy week in general for, for both of us as, as <laughs> we've te- teased it before. Football's here. Basketball's about to be here. And that means a lot of work for us, but a lot of fun tracking what I think is going to be two really good basketball programs along with the football team. 
So stick with us through all football and into basketball season as that's uh, ever quickly approaching and is basically here. So thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. We will talk to you Wednesday with the mailbag. Talk to you later, folks. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.